0: Hey internet, Gordon Young with PC World here, and we have a special treat for you. I have Dell's Travis North, who is official title, thermal technologist in the CTO's office. Basically, that means he's a thermal engineer and a thermal nerd. And the reason we want to talk to Travis today is because he works on laptops and laptops. As you know, the more cooling you have, the better performance and a lot of it's just sort of this mystery box. You don't know what's inside. Um, for Travis, I, I, uh, I first, I want to ask you about the precision laptops that you guys have because it has this feature. It's also in the XPS, but it's the DOO. It's the dual opposite outlet fan which apparently cools in both directions. I initially thought it would sort of reverse flow and blow if the bottom was a block, but that's that's not it. No,
1: that's not it. The DOO is, is a Dell innovation where we're really taking the base physics of the fan and we're taking advantage of that. Um, what makes the fan unique is the fact that the impeller size, so if you talk about the size of literally the wheel, dictates how much airflow, CFM, that you get as well as how hard that airflow is pushed through the box. Um, If you look at a traditional fan, most of the blowers that everybody uses today, the size of the impeller is about 70% of the overall housing. So the space that you have is limited. Um, We started investigating this. We had a crack team within Dell um, that went in. And basically by looking at the impeller itself, the airflow through the internal housing of the fan, we realized that we could potentially get 30% more flow by growing the impeller. Now, here's the challenge. There's a limit. As you grow that impeller, basically the velocity increases and you have something that resists that airflow. It's called frictional losses. And so what happens in a traditional blower, air comes in from the hub side into the impeller. It turns 90 degrees and it's pushed out by the rotation of the blade. It creates a region of high pressure and low pressure. Low pressure pulls it in, pushes it out. What the DOO does, it pulls that same air in, it pushes out in two directions. That's why we call it dual opposite outlet. We are pushing out through the fin stack, the heat sink within the system, but we're also channeling the secondary path to push air into the system. And what happens, that airflow is used to cool the skins.
0: So the air comes in the bottom of the laptop. Yep. Traditionally. And then basically you're taking that air and channeling it in the usual exhaust route side and into the back, but then you're also taking that air and blowing it over the rest of the laptop?
1: Yep, so what we're doing is, so Alienware, most gaming systems today, if you look at our Alienware systems, we have dual outlet, but it's at a 90 degree angle. It pushes out the the back corners of the system. This system's different. That fan, we can't grow the impeller large enough to take up 90% of the space due to frictional losses due to the fin stack on both sides of that fan. What makes this unique is half of the fan is going to the fin stack. The other half is actually going to the internal system where the motherboard is. We are positively pressurizing the box. Gordon, do you remember something from Intel called hyperbaric technology? Yes. Um, this is somewhat similar to that in that we're positively pressurizing the box and we're actually streaming airflow and channeling it over the hotspot, over the CPU, over the
0: motherboard. Yeah, that's so. I mean, when I, when I sort of, kind of finally got what this was i sort of thought well this is a hyperbaric chamber i've sort of seen this in other laptops but so what's specifically the, diff- the difference because i guess the, the hyperbaric chambers are fixed right along the fin stack for the cooler
1: so the, the difference here is the fact that if you talk about hyperbaric per se it's really positively pressurizing the chamber the fin stack is positively pressurized but in this case we still have a negative region which is on the intake side of the fan so what we have to do is we gasket the fan to that bottom cover right? So that's your negative region. So there's no recirculation. The key here really is the size of the impeller. That's what's unique. The reason we're getting more airflow than say the previous hyperbaric approach by Intel, they were still using traditional fans that were 60 to 70% of the housing space. We are going beyond 90%. And the relationship is basically the diameter. If you talk about airflow and pressure, it's a cubic relationship to the size of the diameter of the impeller. And it's a squared relationship between CFM and pressure head. So you get a very large gain based upon that overall design. So thermally, if you talk about what's the best, the best is using all the surface area. So how do I get heat out of the box? Basically, I want to dump it into, say, a heat pipe or a vapor chamber, go to the fin stack. That air is going through the fin stack. That's path A. Path B is really the motherboard out, right? So if I take airflow and I blow it over the board, I'm cooling that board directly with that airflow. I'm getting it out of the box. So from a physics perspective, the best thing I can do is cool the fin stack as well as cool the rest of the motherboard that maximizes the surface area. It also maximizes the airflow. That's where we're going.
0: Okay. Which you have to do, you know, and I, I've seen a lot of vendors sort of say, you know, they do market on, on blades. They'll say we have more blades, you know, like, you know, yep. five blade razor, yep. we have metal blades and all that stuff. Does that. Matters. This is actually specifically different than just simply we added more blades to it.
1: Yep. So we've got one patent already granted. We've got six on this. So basically, from my perspective, we own the technology and what's unique, right? So as I thin the blade, so if I had a, I'll just use a number, a 0.2 millimeter thick blade, if I can take that blade to 0.1, I get more blades on the impeller. So every rotation I get, I get additional pressure head and negative pressure on the backside of the blade to pull air in. It's about a 3 to 5% gain. So if you went from 0.2 to 0.1, you'll get a 5% difference in PQ. The difference here was it's, it's, this is like 30%. This is depending on where you're at. Now there is a limitation and this is where the system design is critical. You get much higher flow, but if you're at very high impedances, you can actually hurt your performance. So this is where the physics come into play. So if I have very high velocities, it's something, so I don't know if you've ever heard the term Bernoulli's equation. Um, Definitely not. Okay. Um, pressure loss. So if you talk about airflow, like when we're designing these fans, usually what we have to do is we have to balance the frictional loss. So that air is blowing over a fin. It creates friction and you lose some of that airflow. Um, so the, the, the trick is basically optimizing the design for the fan, just like your car. Um, the engine is critical for your miles per gallon. Um, your horsepower, your torque, as you're driving down that road, if you want it to be really responsive, that's key. The fan is identical to that in a chassis. So it all starts with the engine, which is the fan itself. And what we've done, I mean, similar if you take Ford's EcoBoost, right, putting a turbocharger on it, we increase the size of the impeller as large as we can within the space. You can't beat that, right? So if you talk about a fundamental physics, um, you can always go thinner blades. You could go metal blades. You can add more blades but maximizing the impeller is where you get a key benefit.
0: And I just want to make sure it's clear to everybody, the impeller is the entire prop assembly or just simply the center section?
1: So it is just the fan. So if you look at the blades themselves, that's what we call an impeller. Um, it has a shaft, and then there's um, basically magnets and windings around it, and that w- that's what rotates the
0: impeller. And is this simply just the shape of the blade? Because I mean, you know, typically on a desktop PC, it's unidirectional fans. This yeah. is, you're, you're sort of choosing to go multi-direction with this in a way?
1: Yeah. So here, here's the difference. the re, That impeller is critical because as you grow the blade, I can't, if you take that same blade and you put a traditional housing with one outlet, what happens is the frictional losses, that fan wants to push that high airflow. But what happens is you will, and I'm going to use a number, right? Imagine um, a, a hurricane wind, Right. You're outside, you feel that wind. That's what's going on inside that little housing. So as it blows around the housing, the pressure is so high that you actually lose performance. And so the key is we looked at that and said, okay, hey, that doesn't make sense. If we try to shove this large impeller, that's 90% of the enclosure housing within that space, what do you have to do? You have to open up the secondary outlet. When you open up that secondary outlet, you cut the velocities in half. So instead of having a tornado wind, you have a nice breeze that you can manage the pressure losses. Um, and so that's how we went in and optimized the design. So if you look at basically the XPS 17 or the precision variant, um, basically for those, those systems themselves, you're going to see that we're getting much higher flows than anyone else in that same volume of space.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, your own numbers say it's about 50% greater cooling in the XPS 17 versus the the 15. Yep. Wow. On um, of course, that's because the 15 doesn't, doesn't have the DOO fans.
1: Now, now there's a, a gap. So if you look at this, it is really important. There's, there's some downsides to it. Um, you have to manage impedance, and you have to manage that flow path. It must be gasketed. And so if you look at how we design the system, when you open it up, you will see that it's sealed to the D cover because you have that positive pressure. If there was any leakage, you get recirculation. And that you immediately lose efficiency and performance.
0: Right. It's basically um, blowing wind everywhere instead of. Yep. It's just, it's, to it. It
1: wants to, exactly. We want the airflow to go through the fin stack. We want the airflow to go over the motherboard, out the system. Um, that's and, the key.
0: And for people who are, are laptop nerds, the D, the D cover is the bottom of the laptop. So that yep. means the, the, the fan is on the bottom. And then essentially there's some kind of foam sealant to the bottom to to seal yep. it. Um, And when you refer to impedance, can you explain that to me like I'm a regular person?
1: So have you ever drove your car and stuck your hand out the window? Right. You see these kids that actually run their hand around that pressure that you feel is the airflow pressure. That resistance is the same as like a system pushing on the fan. That is impedance. It's impeding airflow. Um, So if you guys ever wanted to, to nerd out, you could go look at any fan. They'll give you a curve that shows you the performance at a given impedance or pressure. Um, And so from Dell's perspective, we go optimize all these parameters. We will look at the DOO. We will look at a traditional evacuative fan. Then we look at our ID, our foot height, the venting, um, how much fin stack do I have? We add all of those pressures up and we optimize the design based upon the data um i I know that's a quick crash course in how you design a pc but every single system that we do it's the same process you want to optimize airflow and impedance
0: and that's just the fan section because right there's a lot more hey stick around we are going to talk about everything in a laptop for cooling so the important part we're talking about here is additional airflow inside that laptop that super tight laptop um dell uses something called is it uh it's made by gore is it is it it's a Gore insulation. It's called AeroGel, I think. Yep. So, the, so uh, what, exa- what does that do exactly?
1: So fantastic question. Um, with our XPS 13 products, um, we, we were on a mission for a long time. Gore came to the table with their expanded polytetrafluoroethylene, So all the Gore-Tex material, think about it. It's basically Teflon. You pull it real hard mechanically. You create all these voids. Um, so all of their material is the same. What they do is um, AeroGel material is the lowest thermal conductivity of any material. So it's really resistive to heat transfer. It's like a shield. Um, If you look at it versus like fiberglass insulation in your walls, right? So if you guys have a home and you insulate your walls, this material is an order of magnitude lower in conductivity than the fiberglass insulation. Very, very resistive. The challenge is it's really, really brittle. So it's like glass. So if you feel the raw material, it crumbles. Um, And so what we were able to do with Gore is Gore came to the table and said, we can solve this problem. Let's backfill our EPTFE sheet with the aerogel material. And so they take the EPTFE, they backfill it with aerogel, they dry it, and that's the sheet insulation.
0: Uh, so my question, though, is the aerogel, I was surprised. I think I, on the, maybe I'm wrong because I only saw one picture, but on the precision, the aerogel is on the bottom. I thought it would be on the top, though, to, to keep the keyboard cooler.
1: So it depends where the location is. Um, our specifications, which I can't go into it, are much more aggressive on the keyboard palm rest touchpad. Right? Okay. So that, that's common touch areas. Um, usually when we use that material is if we have a hot spot. So say the CPU is facing down or the heat pipe is facing down, um, or you have a, a power regulator, what's driving the CPU's power. Um, those get very hot. Typically what you may see is we'll take a sheet of insulation to shield the user's legs, as an example, and what we're trying to do in that case is we're actually trying to drive the energy up into the heat pipe or the vapor chamber. We don't want it to go to your legs. So we want it to go out the heat pipe fin stack path to keep the user comfort and comfortable and cool.
0: Yeah, that's I was wondering, is I mean, I sort of assumed that it was there to just keep our legs from burning. But you're also getting the dual purpose of driving that heat to the exactly whatever the cooling device is.
1: So, I mean, if you had an ideal solution, right, I would insulate everything. I would try to drive everything into the heat pipe in the fin stack, if that was fundamentally possible. Um, you always will have heat transfer. Um, heat transfer literally is molecules vibrating, right? They're, they're hitting each other. And that's how you transfer energy. It's literally going from a low temperature to a high temperature, um, flip that high temperature to low temperature. Um, but it's basically electron transfer and bouncing of molecules. And so that type of fundamental physics is what we're trying to do. The insulation itself. Gives us the capability to shield. It's very resistive. The heat doesn't want to go that way. It hits this vapor wall and basically the aerogel. Uh, The material is fascinating. If any of your viewers want to review it, look up the Stardust probe. Um, It is the exact same material they used in the Stardust probe where they took this satellite through the backside of the, uh, I think it was the comet. They captured all the particles. Um, The aerogel was used to actually look at the trace length of the particle capture and they use that to determine how fast those particles were going. And then they could actually capture those particles. It was, is fascinating, but yeah, take a look at it. It is wow. identical as far as material we used in the laptop.
0: So space stage materials in your laptop, of course. Yep. So, uh, okay. I now understand what, what it does and and why use it. The other one, I think I definitely want to ask about is, um, graphite. I thought there, uh, there's no way to have graphite on the roof. Sorry, that's a Chernobyl joke, but <laughs> but what is that what is the graphite used for in these laptops? I is I sort of like I thought that would be an insulator as well.
1: No, great question. Um, so the physics, right? We talked about airflow, we talked about insulators. The graphite is polar opposite to an insulator. It is extremely conductive. Um, so if you talk about copper, um, so I don't know, your viewers will probably use a pot on a stove, right? So if you take a metal pot and put it on a stove, it heats up, you grab it. That's because it's conducting energy into your hand. Um, graphite or graphite sheets. Um, uh, Neograph is one of the, the main companies. Panasonic is another. Um, The conductivities are multiples of copper. So if you look at some of the synthetic graphites that we use today, which are actually a mixture of graphene and graphite, they can go as high as between 1600 to 1800 watts per meter K. To put that in perspective, copper is about 300. So you're five times more conductive in one direction than copper. What's interesting about the material, because it's um, isotropic, basically it does the through-plane connectivity is really low. It's like two, but the in-plane, so the way those molecules are shaped, so if you look at graphene structure, um, basically they're structured in-plane. The energy really wants to go in-plane, le- let's say left and right from this image. It right. doesn't want to go through. So here's what happens. If you put the graphene underneath the keyboard here's what happens. The energy wants to go up. It hits the wall. It spreads out quickly. You distribute that energy over the entire surface. So a lot of times, if you take an IR image, an infrared camera image, um, if you've ever seen uh, uh, the movie Predator, that's kind of yes. like the image, right? Um, if you take an IR image, you can see that it's very uniformly heated. It's because of that material.
0: Huh? Yeah. That's very interesting. Cause I, it seems like uh, most people will think like, well, let's just insulate it using obviously the aerogel would be great, but that's probably a little tough to use, but you're actually just spreading the heat out faster. So it just doesn't accumulate under the keyboard.
1: Yep. So the, the key is for us, we want to put as much energy into the box as we can to give you performance. So as you guys are doing your, your zoom call, your Skype call, you're pushing those CPUs to the max. If you're gaming, say you're doing um, VR where you're driving the physics and the GPU. Really what you want, you want to support as much power as you can in the smallest form factor. This is what we do extremely well. Um, And what we try to do is say, okay, I want to take that energy. I purposefully want to basically put the energy up through the keyboard into the ambient to a point where the user is comfortable. I don't want to go beyond that because of user comfort, but I do want to use that as a heat rejection path. We can get you more performance by doing that. Now, there's a point, right? And basically, um, energy, if you said this is the CPU, say my fist is the CPU, energy can go up, down, left, and right, right? Just from it being hot. We put a heat pipe on it to drive the energy that direction. Energy is still going up through the keyboard. It is still going down through the bottom. So our goal is to, within Dell specs, keep it within the creature comfort limit in both conditions while maximizing the power.
0: Right, and I guess if, again, uh, just... If you were to insulate it, so the heat's going up, if you were to just say, let's just wall off the keyboard with, you know, three inches of (laughs) aluminum, it's still a problem because you want the heat to conduct up. It's You sort of hurt your thermal conductivity by suddenly having hit this wall then, I guess. Yep. So here's the
1: balance, right? It's just like you're in your shower. You've gotten the hot and cold knobs. If I put too much aerogel insulation, I'm turning that hot knob all the way up. You can have a TJ problem, your component temperature limit, because I don't have enough cooling, total cooling capacity. If I have all graphite, I'm potentially putting the cold button all the way up, and all that energy is going into the keyboard or the D cover. The trick or the, the, the optimization is you want to balance those two knobs to make sure that you're hitting your spec on the strip or strip keyboard area, which is that C cover where the keyboard is. The D cover then maximizing power to get out of the box through the stack. If you can do that, you have optimized the design. And here's some cases what happens. A lot of times if we have large components, we may have to push that motherboard down next to the bottom cover. The D cover could get hot. We may purposefully add insulation to shield the user to drive the energy up because we have such a large air gap on the top side of the board. So it's all about optimizations. We talked about it with the DOO fan, we optimized, right? We went in, we looked at the physics, and said, grow the impeller, right? reduce friction drops, frictional losses by giving it two airflow paths. right? Now, if you look at the aerogel insulation, we did the same thing. I said, okay, for the case where we have these large air gaps, let's insulate the user. And then if you look at the keyboard, we may decide that, okay, let's spread. So we have all these tools in the toolkit that gives us the capability to optimize depending on what the design requirements require. But all of this is from physics.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I think most people, they – you take the back of a key, uh, laptop off. They all kind of look the same. You're not understanding the physics. I, I suspect you, know, those little everything from the, the aerogel to the, to the, the graphite and even possibly the shape. And I guess maybe even the thick. Well, then you have to balance it with the thickness of the actual, you know, bottom of it, right? Whatever yep. the, that, that is, huh? Cause I, you know, unfortunately in, in most industries you know people say optimize it, it doesn't really mean anything to any anybody anymore cuz everybody does optimize but i think it it's great to know like wow there really is optimization like what you're talking about here is like oh you actually did your homework just kind yeah. of like not just write optimize in, yeah. in the marketing material
1: yeah we we I, we're, we're a different animal right so if you look at what we have to do um we do like tenths of millimeters so if you look at our foot height um and you go to dell product You're going to have one that's 1.4 millimeters, say on an XPS product. And if you go to precision, it's like 3.3 or whatever the Delta is. We go in and we optimize those foot heights in simulation until we have it spot on. This is the optimal point for pressure drop underneath the system. So as that airflow comes under that system through the foot and into the vent for our ID, the ports, all the limitations, all of that is done to that level of analysis. Um, we do this all in an, all this simulation two years in advance. So if you look at the products we work on, um, we have no hardware at the time. All this work is done very early.
0: Wow. Okay. Uh, I want to ask, because I, I know I have so many questions. I don't want to burn it all on this, although I, I, I could talk about this for another two hours. But you, Dell has this thing I, I had not seen before mentioned this matter. You basically talk about dynamic power consumption versus thermal design power. Uh, Most, most PC nerds are familiar with thermal design power, TDP, but this sort of, what do you mean by dynamic power consumption and what's the significance on on laptops?
1: Great question. Um, Gordon, so I'm going to ask you to see if we can go back in your memory. Do you remember the Haswell generation of product? um, Oh, yes. First started with Turbo. Um, So if if you look at history with Turbo Boost, every type of CPU chip provider keeps keeps going with the same path. Um, they're trying to maximize frequency while maintaining reliability. Um, so if you go, and I'll just use Intel as a reference, but if you go look at a Whiskey Lake or a Comet Lake Intel part, you're going to have a TDP power, then you're going to have a max PL2 power, which is the dynamic power. AMD is the same, right? You can pick NVIDIA, whoever it is. Everybody has booster Turbo. They're all taking the similar approaches. What they're doing is they're allowing you for short periods of time to go to much higher power and much higher frequency. Sure. This was a game changer at Haswell and beyond. So Haswell, Broadwell, Skylake, Whiskey Lake, um, Coffee Lake, you go through the full list of CPUs. Basically at that time, what's happened, you have a nominal TDP frequency. And I'll give you an example. Say it's a Whiskey Lake U, it's two gigahertz at 15 watts. That's thermal design power. Per definition, that is steady state. Right. Dynamic power is the max power. That same, say, 15-watt part, and we'll just make up a number, can go to 60, right? It is four orders higher. It's four multiples higher than the traditional power. Now, that 2 gigahertz part can run at 4 gigahertz. I can double the performance running at that power. So what's critical? If you talk about Dell's products and the historical old way that everybody designed to TDP, you have to design to TDP. But additionally, there's opportunity to innovate because we can go beyond that. And we typically do. So if you go look at Dell products, and if you guys go run um, a hardware Info64 log, you can see this. Um, We typically maximize our power limits within our specification to give you that real bursty performance. Um, And so that is the dynamic power. It's the turbo power.
0: Well, I mean, is it wrong just to refer to it as your PL2? No, two limit.
1: I am trying to be vendor agnostic because everybody calls it something different.
0: I see. Um, Okay.
1: But absolutely, PL two. If you call it boost power, if you call it, um, th- they're all doing the same thing. It is the max power consumption under the max frequency. Um, Got it. Th- that's the way to to
0: review that. It's the vendor agnostic way to refer to it. Now that's that's a good one. I, I like that. That that's very good. I don't care. Uh, yeah, we're independent. You're independent, and which I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this one at you now. It's the hard ball. Uh, clearly, uh, I mean Intel. CPUs are fantastic in laptops. They are also very hot. How much of an advantage do you get from going to a Ryzen seven nanometer, Ryzen four thousand part? Because it just seems like you get so much savings in the thermal budget. To the like to the media, I'm always like, well, yeah. If you if you had a Ryzen, you would definitely save a lot in the thermal budget. Does it make that much of a difference? Or uh, you can answer that in a politically safe way. Or. Uh...
1: Honestly, Gordon, I don't think I can answer that one. I I could tell you that... um,
0: We love everybody.
1: We love everybody. And (laughs) and from our analysis, um, there's advantages and disadvantages to each. I I think both are very focused on giving their customers the max frequency within their form factor. And um, we basically designed to the constraints of the system. So typically the way Dell works, right, we have product planners that are really focused on the best solution. So whatever that solution is for our products. Um, I can tell you this, that we are seeing something very interesting from the work from home experience. So everybody with COVID, um, there is much higher power consumption going on and people are less mobile. And so they are now using their systems more as stationary compute systems. And that is really getting Dell Razor focused on how we can provide the best opportunity for those customers, be it AMD, Intel, NVIDIA, whoever.
0: Okay. Uh, You know, another topic I want to talk about you guys brought up in your precision stuff is we're just seeing... Um, concurrent usage. It sort of, it feels like, uh, for the hardware community, a lot of the testing is very focused on we're going to test. Here's this heavy CPU load. Now we're going to, we're going to run a heavy GPU load, but it seems like it does. It's always had that gap of like, well, you know, laptops have to deal with both of these because in a desktop, it doesn't really matter that much. But in a laptop, you got to deal with the GPU and, and CPU sort of like buying for performance, right?
1: You nailed it. Um, this is one that I think is commonly misunderstood. So first off, the heatsink is critical. Touching off both the CPU and GPU from a Dell perspective, I can't say for others. Um, we give you both concurrency capabilities. So if you have a GPU load, you get the full heatsink. If you have a CPU load, you get the full heatsink. We have a bunch of IP around this. Um, there's multiple methods to do this. And that is one of the unique features of, say, a vapor chamber that touches off both or a heat pipe in a, what we call a longhorn configuration where it touches off both CPU and GPU. The second key aspect is basically what you mentioned. At the end of the day, the size of the box, the overall Z, X, Y, um, cooler volume is really dictated by that concurrency. How high can I run the GPU at a given power of the CPU? Our data shows that typical um, corporate customers, it's less than 5,100. So CPU consumption is almost always less than 50% for a high intensive GPU load. Um, We design where we can typically go to 100-100 at 23C, Um, so typical room office environment, 78 Fahrenheit as an example. Um, As you go up, every single product within our product portfolio has a different concurrency limit. Precision is going to be much higher than, say, a latitude. Um, But at Dell, we've got some unique features, and I think um, that definition, we actually allow our customers to go higher depending on what they choose. So we have something called DPO, um, uh, Dell Performance Optimizer. We have a new feature called DO, um, Dell Optimizer. And we've got another feature called User Selectable Thermal Tables, which are in the BIOS. So if our customers, say you have a latitude and we give them what we call our default um, optimized mode, the customer can actually go in and change it to performance mode. They will actually get higher performance. The PL, The power limits go up. Um, If they set it in that, if that specific customer wants it quieter, we have something called quiet mode. They can pull it down. But typically we look at our customer applications and what the CPU and GPU concurrency is per line of business. And we optimize. So precision. Yes, we push it. Um, Gaming alienware with VR, we absolutely push it. Uh, But that at the end of the day dictates the size of the box, how big we make it X, Y, Z. So if you really want to go thin, The way you can do that is cheat the concurrency. You can bring it down. Um, One of the other unique features we have is thermal control between the GPU and CPU. So you're starting to see this come out. Um, So basically Intel uh, came to the table with uh, machine learning, dynamic tuning technology, and then AMD has smart shift, right? So both of those are looking at optimizing runtime performance within the CPU and GPU from that aspect. Um, so all of that is a real focus of Dell and we actually do a- additional software tweaks on the back end to help optimize performance as well, which I can't talk to too much. But definitely,
0: I mean, cause you know, smart shift and you know, the machine learning and, in, in uh, in, uh, Ice Lake parts, cool stuff. Do, does it feel like we have sort of have many different technologies here we have nvidia with uh i forget with smart boost or some yeah, kind of yeah. boost and is it uh, does it feel like s- someone needs to step in that and just sort of like let's let's just have one uniform system for controlling gpu thermals and 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 cpu thermals and power we would love or, to
1: uh, uh, but okay. you have to get the industry aligned uh, from sure from our perspective yes we would love to see a standardization um across the ind- industry for control um historically uh, technology suppliers don't want to do that because that's their innovation path. They can go in and tweak it. And I'll give you an example Um, with Intel mobility boost technology, with what we released on our 9510, it's up to a 30% performance boost. So they can actually go in and look at the CPU and change how it's operating its specific code. Um, So it's significant benefit to Intel in that particular case. Similarly with SmartShift between the APU and the GPU, AMD goes in and they look at workloads between the both and they optimize each one. They were seeing similar gains. So typically, if you talk about a cadence for CPU technology, um, it was 10% range. They're getting at least that by doing new control. Uh, And the way to think about this is the, the, the recent, a lot of the new innovations is in that control. It's going and optimize at runtime what the user's doing and how we can optimize that product. Um, we have our own where we use those features, but we actually go in and optimize the power limits as well. So we will look at runtime, what the user's doing. And if we think you're doing a bursty workload, um, this is with Intel's MLDTT as an example, we will actually change PL1 and PL2 depending on what you're doing. So if you're doing something like video editing, right? If you're doing a long or rendering an image, something like a Cinebench workload, you're actually much better to bring the max power down and bring your PL one up, you will get better performance. Yeah. It's not it's not intuitive, right? It's an efficiency term. You're getting more performance per watt that way. So you get longer, you get a much better area under the curve.
0: Yeah, I've definitely seen that where laptops that are very thin and they they push PL two too hard, yep. they sort of they hit that, they're just sort of like dolphining up and down, right? Just yeah. kind of like they, they they just bounce between top boost and then they crash down to like two gigahertz and then they and so I just want to make sure that people understand uh, this is Intel language. Sorry, AMD. PL1 is power limit one, which is essentially the base TDP of a CPU. Well, supposed base of like, say, 15 watts for a U part and say 45 watts for an H part. Is that correct? Just make yep. sure I got that right. And then PL2 is your, your higher, that very short term bur- burst. So you might push that uh, 45 watt CPU up to 65 or 85 watts, depending on on how much cooling you have.
1: You got it. And the reality is, I mean, just to be very clear, because I think a lot of people get this confused, um, you can operate above the PL1 limit indefinitely. There's no impact reliability. And what happens is typically your TJs will approach TJ max. So that's, I think there's a big misconception. We actually hear a lot of this from customers. (laughs) They don't understand why their CPU is running at hundred degrees as an example, and I can explain that, right? So if you take a part that's at 15 watts, but if you dump in 80 watts of energy, your delta T in one second is going to be 40 degrees. So if you were operating at 40 degrees Celsius is your current idle temperature. One second later, after applying that load, you're 80. Within two seconds, you're at TJ max. Now you're much better doing that from a performance perspective because you hit that four gigahertz for two seconds, but maybe the third second, we pull it down to three, nine. And so there's confusion in the market. And um, basically, we are working with the component suppliers to release a statement, which Intel already has on this, and their support documentation, that if that is the operating correctly, I know AMD um, is looking at this as well. So there is a big push to help the industry understand that it's okay to operate at 100 degrees, TJ. There's no yep. limit, no issue associated with that.
0: And, and I get you because I get a lot of comments on youtube and the like and people always say oh my god my this laptop that you just looked at it's always running at 99 degrees that's a good design um, right and like yeah so a lot of people are like my response has always been like well look they're warranting it that's within within specs they don't want to give you a new one in two months yeah so
1: and i'll help uh, you get comfortable right we have um four areas of control redundancy controls And so um, you have TJ, which actually causes the CPU to throttle, AMD, Intel, the same, right? On top of that, Dell has another um, limit on the board. So if you hit a critical threshold beyond that, we have our own sensor. Beyond that, we have a soft shutdown capability. Beyond that, there's a hard power pool. You have four redundant controls within the system to ensure that your system is protected. Um, I can't can't vouch for others, right? But that's what we do at Dell because of that very reason. And the goal is, it's like having a car. Um, you're at the, you're, you've got a drag racer. We want to ensure that you can hit that drag race every time. We can get you max performance and come back down because that way you get the most responsive performance. So if you guys are opening multiple applications, it's real snappy. Um, if you don't do that, you you typically get that lag in performance. And so for the best responsiveness, you want to maximize the turbo frequency for sustained performance. You actually want to look at the knee and the curve where it's frequency versus power, where that's optimized.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, but essentially, if you see your laptop running at 99 degrees, that's probably a good thing most of the time.
1: Most of the time. Now the, what they can do is, um, and I'll give your reader some hints. If you're running at 99 at say, um, and you're throttling below P zero frequency. So if you're at 15 Watts, and the nominal frequency is two gigahertz, but you're running at 1.9, that is probably a hint that something's wrong. So that's a way to check it. Um, so I, I think that's the best way to do it. And the challenge you get into with turbo from all these suppliers, nobody guarantees it, right? So it's, it's based upon silicon yield. They say it's opportunistic. And the reason is they're trying to maximize your performance for a short period of time. Um, but that's what we do. So from our perspective, if you look at our coolers, usually we are the best in density. We not be, we may not be the biggest, but we will be have the highest performance per volume of the products.
0: Uh, that actually, I, I have so many more questions on this, but I, I got to move on, or I'm going to run out of time. Um, that really moves me on to the other thing: is the actual cooler material, right? So, uh, you, uh, heat pipes versus thermal chambers. Uh, XPS seventeen for consumers has a really cool copper. Uh, vapor chamber, very much like the a- original XPS 13, uh, two and one, or not the original, but the last generation, pre- this last, this current generation of XPS and the XPS 15 and the vast majority of laptops have a tr- traditional, uh, heat pipe, which yep. is better.
1: So, I mean, for, if you had the exact same number of heat pipes as the vapor chamber space, there's no difference. So the, the phase change. So if you talk about the physics, The physics is both phase change. So inside that heat pipe, just like your stove, um, if you're boiling a pot of water to boil pasta as an example, that's what's going inside the heat pipe. So what happens is basically the water is over the CPU. It hits up to the saturation temperature, and inside that pipe it starts to boil. Once it goes to a gas, it's high pressure, it zips super fast to the fin stack region, what we call the condenser, and it actually rejects that energy up. A vapor chamber typically is better because, one, you don't have the walls of the heat pipe. So for the exact same cross-sectional area, I don't have the walls of the heat pipe taking up space. So I get more cooler volume. It has a higher dry-out capability. So what you'll see is typically from Dell, if we, we would love to use heat pipes for the exact same area if we can because usually it's cost-advantaged, gives you the same performance within that area. But a lot of times we can't, so we will look at using a vapor chamber because it gives us higher max power without drying out. So both a heat pipe and a vapor chamber have something called dry out. And literally, you can think of this as, um, say, you're boiling a pot of water and all the water's gone, but you've still got your pot on the stove and it starts getting red hot. That's what's happening at dry out. The water can't get back quick enough over the CPU to boil. And it's literally drying out that region over the CPU. Your temperature spikes.
0: You're basically beyond the spec of the cooler at that point, right? You got it. And then, so for people who don't know, a vapor chamber is a... Flat looks like usually a loop, uh, copper. Yep. And inside there, there are it has chambers. It's not just simply a solid piece of metal, not a heat spreader, right? Yep. Um, much
1: harder to make. So if you talk about sealing a vapor chamber, a lot of times they will laser weld around the corners. A heat pipe is basically a copper tube. They braze it. They cap it. Um, so both are fantastic heat transfer devices. Vapor chambers are slightly better. They are much more expensive than a heat pipe. Um, from an overall transport capability, the delta T, that's what we usually call it, um, is the temperature delta from the evaporator to condenser, from the CPU to the fin stack, will be identical between a heat pipe and a vapor chamber for the exact same area. Um, we actually did a bunch of testing on our, um, I can't remember, the, uh, we called it Law Ferrari, but I think it was the XPS 15, 2 and 1, right? And we had vapor chambers and heat pipe identical because they were the exact same area. We did this three times because we wanted to go look at the performance. Now the vapor chamber can give you unique areas, right? So I can extend a vapor chamber out over a region of the board that you can't with a heat pipe because the heat pipe is limited by the bend radius. So usually the bend radius is dependent on the diameter of the pipe. So how much I can bend it and at 20% performance, that is where a vapor chamber can be advantaged because you can stamp the entire structure versus a heat pipe.
0: Oh, you're making me think about my dryer vent, because I have a lot of ninety I have doesn't a lot of do 90, that. a lot of ninety degree bends to make it through our house. And it's like that's not good.
1: I, I just made you a heat transfer engineer. So basically yes. our whole goal is pretty simple. We streamline bends. This is for airflow, vapor, whatever. It doesn't matter. You want to minimize the curvature because that's a pressure drop in everything. That is one part of the base physics of heat transfer.
0: So the fewer bends and the lower the lower the angle is always better in it. Yep. if you're looking if a normal person looking at the inside of their laptop fewer bends.
1: Yep. So if you have a very um, sharp 90 that that's about a 20% loss in performance.
0: Wow. Wow. Um and, uh, so I on heat pipes so cuz those are traditional I, wondering insides, because they're not all the same. There are different fillings on them that act a function as the wick, the, the transfer material. Yep. What is there a certain material that's better for a laptop versus, say, a desktop? Because desktops, we see a lot of those desktop coolers, they've got heat pipes, but you know they sit in one place, they never move. In a laptop, do you need to stick to a certain material?
1: Yes, you do. Um, so for a laptop, usually the best, it depends on Z thickness, um, but a composite heat pipe that has a Think about a V. So if you say the groove in the wall, so if you take a pipe and there's something that's called a grooved heat pipe, which literally looks like a V notch in the wall of the pipe, that with centered particles, so if you take a bunch of very small particles, you put it over the V, that's called a composite heat pipe. That is one of the best because it is the limitation of a heat pipe is something called the capillary limit. So if you took your, a, a um, napkin and you drop a drop of water on it, you know how it wicks out into the yes. paper? This is identical. So, inside the pipe, that is the limit in almost all cases. And so, every type of pipe structure is looking to maximize that wicking. Because what happens as that water boils goes to the condenser where the fin stack is, it actually converts back to a liquid. That liquid then has to be pumped all the way back to the boiler. So, a heat pipe for a desktop is very simple, right? If it's a straight tube, it's gravity fed right? But a laptop is not. So you actually have to use that wicking structure. If you go really, really thin, right? Sub two millimeters in Z, usually it's something called an ultra thin heat pipe. The difference is we actually use braided wire and they will either stick it at the center of the flat pipe. So if this is the pipe, imagine just this little area here is the wicking structure. The two channels are used to allow the vapor to go by. That's called an ultra thin So you can use either fiber mesh, they can use centered particles, Um, different suppliers use different methods, but most of those are pretty well the same in the ultra thin range. Typically 1.4 millimeters thick is your optimal design.
0: And when we mean uh, thickness, we don't mean the the OD, the outer diameter, we mean the actual wall thickness. So the flatted, so if you
1: see usually what happens in all of our heat pipes, we're crushing them. So, and that is to get them within the space. So usually you could take an eight millimeter, you'll flatten it to 12 with maybe a Z thickness of two millimeters. Usually the critical dimension for us is that Z thickness of the pipe within the full Z stack of the laptop.
0: Do you lose um, any efficiency between a traditional, you know, round pipe and your flattened heat pipe?
1: Significantly. So as you drop that down, um, I'll just give you an example. An eight millimeter round could support sixty. But if you take that same 8-millimeter round diameter and flatten it to 2, and I'll make up a number, it's 20 watts. So you are only one-third the transport capability. So that's why you'll see, if you've noticed recently, everybody keeps adding heat pipes, right? So I'm 6, they're 7, they're 8, they're 9. What they're doing is as we all try to get thinner in Z, we have to add pipes to support the total power transport. Because transport's going up, we're going thinner in Z, we have to have more. Now, the magic number, honestly, is around seven to eight. Then you're better off going to a vapor chamber from a cost perspective. Oh, Um, yeah. So that's where you might as well just bite the bullet and go do it. But there's many reasons why we don't. It could be continuity to supply or design or um, to go look at it.
0: Yeah, because that is my question. Because you know, as all things marketed with PCs, it was megahertz, whatever. A lot of laptops are saying we got X amount of heat pipes is better, right? So, But seven is really sort of that that limit of what you're going to get out of a flat heat pipe?
1: Usually there's there's issues because if I have these itty bitty dies, right, if you take the C- CPU die, it's like a rectangle, I've got to take that um, 45 watts of power and dump it into all those pipes. So unless I can spread it into all the pipes evenly, you start to lose efficiency as you go towards the edge. Um, so there, there's some unique things that you can do. And this is what we did on Serenity. Um, or Alienware 51 Mobile, if you look at there, there's like a vapor chamber interface plate that goes on that we use to spread and then it goes up into the pipes. So that's one way of doing it. Um, But everybody would have to go do the physics to determine what that is. But usually around seven, you're starting to give me cost parity with a vapor chamber because a vapor chamber gets much more expensive than say a heat pipe. And so that's where you start to see this range split. Um, Now there are limitations of transport capability even with a vapor chamber, depending on what the total Q max and Z is. Uh, but all of that is we have to do all that physics when we're laying out the box.
0: Okay. I And I do have, um, so for heat pipe, traditionally, if you open up a laptop, you'll see a figure, it's sort of a figure eight design where yep. the CPU and GPU are sort of at the, at the where the eights, where the, the two circles meet. Yep. Um, first question and a follow up is, how does that even work? Because is it only a single direction? Because you essentially have the CPU and GPU sharing the heat pipe. and um, my follow-up is how does it, cause sometimes you, what we'll see in laptops is you'll have a figure eight, but then the GPU will usually get a few more individual dedicated heat pipes as well. How, how do you determine that?
1: Okay. So, um, very, very good question. I think this was hard for everybody to understand. Um, thermally, there's a term called power over area. So if I have 45 Watts over two millimeters squared, That is much worse than, say, 200 watts over 30 millimeters squared. It's the power over area term. So typically, the CPU is actually harder to cool at the same power um, because the size of the individual hotspots are much smaller. The GPU is typically uniformly heated. So if you look at the GPU die when it's loaded, um, you get this much larger area. And so that's the first Uh, The second key aspect is total power. So once you've done that heat flux calculation, that will tell us how many pipes we need and how to route it. Now, your next question, the way the heat pipe works, basically that pipe is in the wicking structure, how we talked about that groove or that centered particles before, that is full of fluid. So if I have that figure eight, let's just say I have one side touching off the CPU, going to a fin stack on the left, right? Let's say then it goes over to the right for some reason. What happens is that fluid boils wherever it's located at that saturation temperature. So if the CPU and GPU, both pipes are boiling. And what happens is as it turns to a gas, just like you're blowing up a balloon, right? So you blow up a helium balloon or you blow up a balloon. That's a high pressure. That, at that pressure wants to go somewhere. So in the balloon case, it's inflating the balloon. In this case, as that water turns to vapor, it actually wants to go to the region of low pressure, which is where the fin stack is. So they basically, the vapor is going both paths back to the fin stack. It condenses to liquid, and it does the same thing. So there's something we talked about earlier, that capillary limit, the wicking structure. It'll take the shortest path back. It actually goes back both ways. It's a very good design because if you we call it a longhorn, right? So if you look at our design, I know other competitors do the figure eight. Texas. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, both are good because basically that length, we call it the length of the heat pipe, is really dictated by the distance from the CPU to the fin stack. So if I have two pipes, right, even though it's one functional pipe, it acts as two heat pipes. Um, so I know there's a lot of confusion in that, but that's how you design.
0: Would it ever split though? I mean, would you, so I, again, uh, if you have a non-concurrent load where you're just heating that GPU or CPU up, you, does it go bidirectionally? or Yes, does it, it still, does.
1: It will go okay. bidirectionally. So that's the fantastic part about it. You take this on, it's just like a regulator, right? So if you plop the vapor chamber on it, the great thing about phase change, it's just pressure. So it will go to the region of lowest pressure. So if your CPU is low powered, the vapor pressure from the GPU will overdrive to the left. It'll go to the CPU fin stack. If you're running a CPU intensive workload, it goes the opposite direction. It goes to the GPU fin stack. So that's why it's very important to have both of those touching. So if you have the CPU and GPU both combined with at least one pipe, you have good transport to the fin stack.
0: Uh, okay. And you sort of talked about this earlier, and I, I want to ask a little more detail because uh, talking back to Haswell days, when we went from 20, 22 nanometer to whatever ivy was yep we had serious problems because or maybe it's the other way around whatever it was after haswell it was ever ivy right Haswell, broadwell sky lake broadwell um, yep. but we had or maybe from wow gosh i gotta go back further i think sandy to ivy
1: <laughs> we're showing <laughs> our age my friend this may I know not be a good are,
0: plan we are too old but i remember one of the issues was that die went from you know very large nanometer big chip got really really tiny and it's just getting smaller, are we hitting limits that where you can wick the heat away from the CPU um, fast enough? I mean, do we have to go to a different material? Because it seems like copper is not going to really cut it because we're just, they're just getting smaller and smaller. Dyes aren't getting bigger. They're getting smaller, right? Yep.
1: Great question, um, especially from a dynamic power. So if we go back to that full boost slash turbo power, the answer to that is yes. Um, we are starting to hit limits based upon our transport capability. So this goes back to your TJ question. What are, our, what are the chip suppliers doing? They are trying to maximize that performance in milliseconds. So what you're not seeing is basically you may only get one second at full five gigahertz in the next gen CPU, but that's per design. They know that you can't get that energy out of the silicon through the TIM. To the evaporator, the heat pipe quick enough, and you are limited by the physics of that transport path. Um, and so that's why the turbo power and all the designs around it—that's critical.
0: I do wonder if that's a, another, you know, problem the hardware community is going to have to deal with. Is like we're used to sort of like looking at something like for a long, a long runtime, where a lot of the performance is not in doing a two-hour encode. But a lot of performance is really that really extremely short bursty modes that we, can, we can't we can even measure because it's it's occurring so fast, right? I,
1: I can tell you this is a frustration for Dell because we do so much work on the turbo performance that a lot of the benchmarks don't capture this. So if you go run Cinebench in a loop, um, we just had this done. It, it didn't show up any difference. But if I go one run one Cinebench, we're beating everybody by, by 25%. Um, And so that's typically what we see a lot of the activities you do during the day are very bursty. You guys open an app, maybe you run an Excel macro um, or you're on a video conference call and we've got 10 guys open, right? That workload is basically idle and it's very bursty in nature Um, with our machine learning capability. We are actually optimizing at runtime for that same case. So I think that that is a key example where yes, I think in the future, um, benchmark applications absolutely should get razor focused on uh, bursty performance, that short term turbo duration. 3D Mark is pretty good. You will see it burst up and come back down. PC Mark um, as well. You can see in some of the workloads, um, the Excel portion of the workload is very. So if you go look at PC Mark, if you guys haven't done that, it's a benchmark application. Part of it runs an Excel macro. If you look at it, that's a steady state workload. But if you look at the video conference call, some of the other activities like web browsing, it's very bursty in nature. So that will capture some of it. um, But I think there's not a good application today that is razor focused on that really dynamic response time of the system. Um, I know others are looking at that with some of the new requirements, um, but that's going to be vendor specific.
0: Yeah, and I i don't want to say that doing a two-hour encode is invalid, but what I'm saying is there's other things that really matter to what a lot of people do that has to be captured. And it's our—it's really our problem as a press. We need to review them correctly and get that information out so people understand, yeah, this benchmark may not actually tell you exactly what, what you need to know. So,
1: Yeah, my recommendation, run Cinebench once. So leave the system at idle. You run it once. You should see if... That will be very indicative because that's like a thirty-second run, um, something that is really tuned for performance. You'll see it in that, that benchmark. Okay.
0: Um, for since we're on heat pipes, I, I got to keep us moving because I'm going to run out of time. Uh, on heat pipes, this is a big thing too because everybody wants to repaste their laptops. I don't recommend unless you're you know you don't care about your warranty. Uh, first question is liquid metal. Because definitely vendors are pushing, hey, we got liquid metal now. I've had a couple of vendors. There's three laptops that I know of that are being sold with it. Advantages of liquid metal, disadvantage. Are there any big disadvantages? And what do you think about this whole sort of like, I just need to repace my laptop, which is take apart the heat spreader and, and put...
1: I'll answer the second question first. I believe that culture is because of the lack of understanding on the TJ response due to dynamic power. So everybody sees 100 and they immediately want to go under volt, right? They'll pull in Intel to the XTU and they're under volt apart. So yes, you can do that. And it'll cut power significantly Then they repaste it. And then you'll typically see some logs online saying, Hey, I cut my temperature by 12 degrees. Yeah. But you're running at a lower voltage. Um, so you've got risk to basically soft bit errors if you do that. Um, Behavior is historic change in power limits. Because if you look at historic history, right, if you go to Haswell, turbo was only 19 watts for a 15 watt part, right? So if you go back to that generation, to this generation, you're seeing, you know, 50 to 60 watts. So yeah. within 22, 14, 10, that transition in scale, basically that power has quadrupled. And so that's what you're seeing is the response to. Now, the liquid metal, I think there's pluses and minuses. I am absolutely terrified of it, to be honest, um, because I think there's a way to do it, but I haven't seen a good way where it's completed yet. And here are the risks. Uh, Basically, with aluminum, it oxidizes. So if you have any type of aluminum structure, either an auger-type feeder from our suppliers to actually apply the material, or if you have it come in in contact with aluminum, (laughs) It basically breaks the grain boundary of the aluminum and causes it to oxidize. So that material immediately impacts your design. If you have the presence of water vapor, you can create hydrogen gas. So basically, if water vapor plus the aluminum gets into play, you can, you, it outgases from that aspect as well. That's the second key factor. So humidity is an impact. So those two are key. The third is serviceability. So if you go try to remove the material, it's extremely electrically conductive. If you don't manage it correctly and you get it on your motherboard, you will short out whatever component it comes into contact with. And most of our suppliers that we see in customers, they're going to take a paper towel and try to wipe it off. And if you wipe the material off, the surface tension causes it to roll and it wants to roll off the side of the CPU die down onto the motherboard. So that typically has been um, the first three key constraints. The fourth constraint is basically material fillers. If you sh- ship it at cold temps, it wants to solidify and creates voids. And so if, from Dell's perspective, we ship a lot of product um, around the world, if I air ship anything and it goes to sub-freezing temperatures, you create potential regions for basically separation of the material, you create voids. Um, so that's why I think it's, it's critical to do it right. Um, I haven't seen it yet. We are tracking this. Obviously, I told you, um, maybe not on, on this call, but I manage Dell's technology roadmap. Um, we are razor focused on it. There is potential there as far as conductivity and what we call heat capacity, but it has to be done right or you're going to risk potentially long-term liability reliability issues.
0: Sure. There's no doubt that it is better, but oh, absolutely. The, the risks are the issues, Those those risks of have- blowing so, up your laptop
1: yeah so we we use a material called 7921 from Shinetsu. we've got dow grease as well it's actually pretty good so if you look at arctic silver <coughs> we've done some recent testing and i know that's what everybody usually replaced our stuff with um the 7121 from our data shows that we're better and so there's no reason to repaste your solution on an alienware or Inspiron um with arctic silver you could go look in doing it with the gallium liquid gallium um my feedback to you for the DIY guy: Take your time, ensure you get it at the center of the die. Make sure you apply the heatsink appropriately. Make sure you don't let any of that material come out. Um, yes, you will see a probably a five to six degree drop in temperature based upon the conductivity and capacity. But the risk is you got to do it right um, from from that approach.
0: <clears throat> i right, just wondering. So. Uh, the, the well thermal paste is what everybody calls it, but you know the basically the stuff between the uh, die and, and 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 the heat pipe is that applied at the factory? I don't know if you can answer this. Is that applied typically by hand or is that machine based? Because I I kind of do wonder if there's sometimes you get that worker that's still eating their taco and you know. <laughs> That would be me. I'd be like, wow. Oh, I didn't do that one. Right. You know, no, we're, we're fully, got fired from Ford. So no,
1: we're fully automated. Right. So, um, the old school days of screen printing, uh, that was a long time ago, at least on okay. mobile. If you look at our approach, everybody is trying to go automation. So that's a worldwide trend. Um, they are trying to ensure quality and we talked about this a little bit. So if you take liquid metal, I don't know if you're familiar with what an auger is, but basically no. imagine no, this. Please big, explain it. It's like a corkscrew. So if you look at a corkscrew um, for a wine bottle, that's metal. That's usually how they want to actually, they call it an auger application of the material onto say the dye or the heat sink. So you pull the board over, you get this auger that screws it with liquid metal. If anything is aluminum, if it comes into contact with any of that material, it basically um, ruins the material. And so it becomes critical that you apply it. So. You can do it with pressure or other methods um, to go do that. But in most cases, we are fully automated um, from our okay. our process.
0: And I'm asking that because a lot of the comments I see from people, they'll say like, you know, uh, Gordon must have built my laptop because they did a lousy job on the paste job. I got to repaste it. And then they always, and I don't know if it's real or just fish stories because it's always like, well, I, I went from 99C down to, you um, know, 25C after I did my repaste, right? That's... So-
1: Yeah. So usually what you'll see in that data set, they also undervolted. So if you undervolt, um, the relationship between power and voltage is a V squared term, right? So if you go from 1.1 volts to 0.1, that's 10%. It's 10% squared. And so that's the reduction in power. So most of the cases you'll see that they'll go in, they'll use an application such as Intel XTU. They're undervolt and they'll change the grease. Now that's not saying per se that, um, you know, we ship... 14 million latitude units of the year plus um you know it, can you have excursions absolutely um when you're doing that type of volume but typically we're pretty rock solid our quality organization is very good um we have basically what we call critical parameters it's called cpk critical performance uh, parameters um that we track at the factory to look at that in most case most cases they should be pretty good now what could happen and it has happened in the past it it gets really challenging when you're touching off say CPU, GPU, memory of the GPU, FETS, voltage regulator of both, and you've got all these touch points. So if that heatsink is not within spec, or if you have it shipped from a factory, and let's say an operator grabs it the wrong way and it bends, now when I apply it, I have it, we'll call it caulking, but I don't have full flatness. Um, that That absolutely can be a key challenge, and it's one that we take, very seriously and looking at our designs and our call outs of our critical parameters with our partners.
0: I almost wonder if people should be, you know, torquing the, the actual heat pipes down when they're, you know, I imagine most people just do it by hand, but I almost wonder if if you're doing a repaste, you should torque it to using a, you know, a torque wrench.
1: Micro torque wrench. That's fantastic. That's the, that's the recommendation. Um, obviously if you're working on your car as a DIY, you can do what you want. Right. Um, but from a warranty perspective, typically they should torque it to the right torque um, because that is critical because usually the die, if you take a low end part, it's like 10 pound force. If you take a larger, larger part, it's like 25. So it is important how much pressure you put on the die to make sure that that heat sink conforms, because if you look at the die surface, so it's not flat. So everybody looks at it, it looks flat. It can be concave. It can be convex, right? So if I put a heat sink on there, that's conv- con con con. Facts, concave as well, right? You can have the worst case where it looks like this, or you could have a case where it looks like this. And so yeah. it's really what they call post surface mount technology. So post SMT is really critical on hey, do we have the right flatness of the die? Do we have the right flatness of the heatsink when you apply that pressure and make sure it's evenly distributed when you screw it down?
0: Right. I mean, we're talking probably sub millimeter differences enough to really kind of throw performance out of whack.
1: It can. And that's why if you look at our tolerances, in most cases, when we do our testing, we look at the bounds. We will have the low tolerance, the high tolerance, and we'll sure that we're within spec with both cases. Um, In most cases, I know the old school grease, right? We had something called 7783D. It was a little less than Arctic silver. So that's why you probably saw that benefit. But um, last generation, we went to 7921, which is much better. And so I would not expect that you would see a benefit of repasting with Arctic silver, for example, or any other high-conductivity grease versus the 7921 we ship with the
0: system. So I do want to ask, so, like, if I'm the average person on the Internet and I repace my laptop, we're not saying Dell or anybody specifically, just generally I repace my laptop. Yep. Now my temps have gone from, you know, 99C down to, you know, uh, 92C or 93C. Should I really expect more performance out of that? Or, I mean, I have increased the thermal headroom, but so I should – still get some performance benefit only, i
1: guess only if you're thermally limited so if you were at 100 c for example and you were throttling so the best way to look at this um, now this is i mean this is all independent i'm not condoning this or any answer. sure no um,
0: no i don't either i like warranties so
1: so so assure th- so assuming someone's doing it on their own they can go look at frequency and if they looked at rated frequency of the cpu and if they saw a drop in turbo when they were at 100 Yes, they would see a benefit by getting lower temperatures. You can also do that with performance mode. So this is one thing I really want to push hard because I don't think most of our customers understand this. Um, With this generation of commercial products, we have moved this into BIOS. So all a customer has to do is hit the BIOS. I think it's F12, F2. I can't remember which key. I always get them confused. Basically, if they go into BIOS, they look at the feature set under power. They're going to have these four modes. If that customer places the system in performance mode, they get an increase in fan speed. They also get an increase in power limits. So yes, it's going to be slightly louder. They're going to get a little bit higher T-skins, but they are going to get significantly better performance um, with this generation of product. If the customer doesn't like that, let's say it's an admin, right? Somebody at the front desk and they're just logging people in and out or an executive going to a meeting and they're, they're making large decisions and they don't want the noise. They can place the system in quiet mode and it'll cut acoustics 30%. And so- We have been razor focused to give our customers options because what we found, customer preference is different, right? We're hitting the fat part of the bat with our base spec, but we want to give them that flexibility to basically go in and tune it for whatever they need. And this was a big one for our commercial products with our Comet Lake launch for this year.
0: Uh, why do it in the BIOS rather than from the OS? You can do both. Um, and
1: we okay. do, so, so basically deep Dell power manager, yeah. um, usually for a corporate customer, they don't want to actually load the additional software. So they want a clean image. They take their base image, wipe everything. This gives them the capability to script it. So they can basically write a script to do whatever policy they want. So very, very useful for our corporate customers. Um, consumer customers, you have that capability with command center and all our existing features today. You can do it from the OS as well.
0: Okay. So that's just mostly for, for big IT shops for precision, which is mostly for corporate customers. Uh, so uh, again, I, I got to move us along before we run out of time getting into laptop design. Mm-hmm. Um, the Z height thing every time I do a video on a laptop. And it's like, wow, this, you know, this is, a, and you know, clearly bigger is generally better the thinner the laptop. And I always get comments from people and they say, why chase Z height? with the thinness. Well, I don't care about thinness. And I know they say this, and I'm just kind of wondering your perspective, do people actually buy a thicker laptop over a thinner laptop when they're next to each other?
1: Uh, that's a hard question. Um, I'm going to speak from my experience. I think if you asked a marketing planner, you'd get a different experience. Um, I think what you see, it's really dependent on the customer. If I have a customer that's a precision customer, somebody that's doing CFD, FEA, um, they are attracted to thinner as long as we can maintain performance, but they would much rather buy a bigger box if we can give them more frequency. And so it's all about workloads for that customer. If you take um, sales and marketing, Z, Z, they want it clean. They want aluminum. They want the ID to be nice. So when they go to that medium, they open up their system. It looks professional. It is compact so I can work on an airplane, right? So I think it's different per customer, but we do see a push. And I think the Z anymore is really a correlation to technology. What they're really saying is this has the best materials. This has the best technology because for us, the Z isn't necessarily just the goal, the goalposts it pushes the engineering organization to go innovate. And I like it from that aspect because it sets the bounds, right? How thin can we go or how small an X and Y? But I think what you're seeing is weight is important as well. So we're seeing more and more that, hey, customers care about narrow bezel, right? That's, That's one of the keys. And so if you see Dell products, we are really razor focused on the size of the bezel and the panel. Z is important as well. And I know if you look at a lot of our competition in our commercial space, they're much bigger on their bezels. Um, That's why we've had to go much smaller on our cooler solutions. It's driving innovation. But I think in general, um, gaming customers, you're going to see Dell continue to innovate in that space. We're going to be looking at Z while maximizing performance. One of those existing solutions, the DOO, was an example of us doing that with the XPS 17, what we will do in gaming as well. Um, And you will continue to see us focus on both. We're going to really try to drive performance with Z. Yeah,
0: it's just I I bring that up because when I did the video on the original Alienware N15, which was the first one that got really thin, a lot of people were saying, I like thick Alienwares. I was really like, I was really kind of shocked because everybody always says they want thinner. And then you had this crowd that wanted thicker. So I'm a
1: hardcore gamer. I love our Alienware 51 mobile.
0: Um, Oh, yeah. the, The
1: code name was Serenity, but Alienware 51M that thing is awesome. Um, I VR off of it, play League of Legends. Wow. Um, the keyboard is fantastic. Uh, the system response, the screen size, um, the slope is, is very good. Um, so I personally like that machine, but I can tell you that, um, our XPS 15 is a fantastic box for content creators. It rivals Apple, um, easily. And I think if you look at a lot of our corporate customers, our engineers, they love it as well. So instead of having a bigger box, that if I'm just doing CAD, like um, Pro-E or AutoCAD, it gets the job done. And it's relatively small. Um, But if you have to do FEA, if you go to my data scientists, they want all the horsepower. So they're going with our bigger Precision 15, 17s, 7710, that that class, if you look at um, uh, the type of compute that they're really wanting. And that's where you get that benefit
0: do you i i'm going to ask you this because this isn't necessarily a science thing but do you think this is very much about people's expectations because i know an eight pound alienware area 51m is just going to pound everything mercilessly right i'm not i also know so no i'm not going to get that in the z height of an xps 15 even though say it's a say even a an alienware uh uh, uh, M15 versus an XPS 15, there's definitely a considerable difference in weight. There's a considerable difference in, in Z height, but yeah. I, it feels like even though a lot of people, they, they see like, Oh my God, I'm give this, this, th- this laptop, it throttles compared to this laptop that weighs 40% more or 30% more or has more volume. Is yeah. that? I mean, how do we, how do we get past that?
1: I think throttling per se, right? Throttling, the definition of throttling is below P0 frequency, so the nominal frequency of the part. So they're not throttling. They could be turbo throttling, so lowering the max turbo frequency, and that absolutely will be the case. And I'll just share it with you. So if you look at our concurrency on the XPS 15 class of product, it's it's around 57 watts. Um, you go up to 17, you're going to be pushing 90 watts. If you look at the Alienware 51M, it's, it's 200 watts plus, right? Um, so your, your analogy is spot on. Um, typically, our thicker systems will have more capability because you have more headroom. That's for power delivery, the voltage regulator design, as well as the hardware that we're placing in the box and the cooling solution. So that typically that analogy holds where you see true innovation is where you start to see like the DOO, the aerogel, the graphite, where we start saying, okay, we're going to hold volume constant How do we get more performance? Um, And that's where we're razor razor focused thermally. And Dell, I mean, the great thing about Dell, we give you a range of products. If you want basically gaming, Alienware game or um, Dell gaming, right? It used to be called Inspiron gaming. Uh, That product, you're going to get a 1060. You're going to get good hardware. You're going to be able to game relatively well, right? It is not Alienware. Alienware is a premium box. If you go to Alienware, you're going to get that full, you know, 2080 experience with this CPU, um, it's the no-holds bars. So if you're doing first-person shooters, it's not going to lag. It's going to be responsive. You're going to have all the software features. If you want the premium experience, you can go to the Alienware 51M. Right? So we have this class of product, depending on budget of what those customers want and need, that we can give them all that capability, and it scales. right? And so if you look at our product portfolio, that's what we always try to do. We try to say, okay, here's our customers. Here's their budget. How do we give them the best per bucket? If you got the guy that wants to buy the Lexus equivalent, here's the Lexus. If you have the guy that really needs the Toyota, here's the Toyota. And we give that full range.
0: Sure. And there's definitely people who want their, you know, Mustangs too, right? Yeah, so that's, yeah, exactly. And I guess that would be more of a gaming box. It's, it really is sort of like, it's like saying, how come, you know, <laughs> my, my Ford Taurus <laughs> isn't as fast as my my ford mustang
1: and that's a problem right a lot problem, of,
0: right? of fords for me today for some reason i don't know but <laughs> yeah. yeah you got the shelby on your night mind yeah 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 gt um so i mean we're we're just not going to really break the laws of physics here right i'm not going to get a, a seven pound laptop that is it's always going to almost outperform a four pound laptop that's just basic physics we're not yeah. going to break that
1: yeah if you look at a lot of our innovations really um you know, changing materials of blades. We were the first to market with uh, metal injection molded fans, right? Um, that was a 5% gain. So we we do all these innovations for three to 5%. It's very similar to like GE and their airplane engines. It takes a thousand cuts to really slay the monster. You have to do 2%, 3%, 1%. And if you stack all those up, you get a 10% gain. Um, so almost all of our products, that's what you see. The DOO was a critical one because using that secondary airflow path, you saw, you know, a 30% plus benefit. That's not normal, right? So um, that's on the verge of breaking the laws of physics because we cheated. We had a secondary outlet, right, um, to go do that. But thinking smarter, we will continue to do that. Um, but I, you will almost always, if the laptop is bigger and they use it efficiently, they use all the same technologies and physics, it will outperform a thinner, smaller system.
0: Right. And that is one thing people need to remember, too, is I... I'm kind of blown away by some of the current generation, you know, Ultrabooks, you know, U-Class laptops. You're seeing what we got out of, you know, uh, five-pound, six-pound laptops from just a few years ago now in a a two-pound laptop. So it's as long as it's within a generation, I guess.
1: Yeah, Silicon, you know, Silicon improved. So if you look at the latest generation trends for both AMD and Intel, we are seeing much better gains, right? IPC gains coming out of the, the products. Um, that on top of a lot of the innovations, what you're seeing thermally, and you, I think this is obvious, um, historical laptop solutions had a single fan, a single fan stack, right? With Alienware, we went to what we called our, our dual intake quad exhaust. We're intaking from the top and bottom. <clears throat> we're exhausting out the back and side per fan, right? DOO is somewhat like that, except we take the fan and we say, okay, we're now going to blow out through the chassis and out the back of the fan stack. So the trick, honestly, is maximizing the usable space for your cooling solution. How do I get the most efficient fans in the existing space? And then how do I take surface area and attach it to the hot stuff, the CPU, the GPU, the FETs, the memory? Um, That will continue to be our strategy moving forward as we optimize our designs. And it's a lot of work, right? I I I would love to tell people, you know, we'll go through 10 iterations of designs through CFD and hand calcs. Um, Usually the way this works, it starts with a piece of paper. Um, marketing will come in and give us a feature set of what they want us to design to. And then we will scope how big the heat sink needs to be for the Z target. We will scope the fan sizing. And then after that, we will start using what we call computational, um, uh, CFD computational fluid design, and basically gives you that capability to simulate the box before we make it. We'll go through six iterations of that design. And then we actually go build the first stuff, um, so by the time we make something, we're 90% of the way there. We have very high confidence of that it's going to work. Uh,
0: so uh, I'm going to move us to sort of laptop design. Uh, I want to ask you, oh, actually, uh, before I forget, this is a very important thing I we need to address right here because you're an expert, an actual expert. Right. We see it a lot. This laptop throttles. Now, you mentioned that earlier, but I do want to emphasize it. That is an actual throttle is P0, which is base base clock? Base clock. So, okay.
1: So you are only truly throttling if you're below base clock. Um, turbo's opportunistic. Boost is opportunistic from whichever supplier you go look at. So if you are operating at TDP, at base clock, that is specification. Now, you can. It is fair game for you to say, hey, I had vendor A and vendor B. We both ran Cinebench. For some reason, vendor B was 2.5 gigahertz, but vendor A was 3 gigahertz. That's true data, but it's not throttling. It's basically turbo throttling, if you want to call it that, or it's a frequency reduction based upon turbo. Now, there's part-to-part variation, right? Some of that could be literally due to silicon A, silicon B coming off the wafer. Could the first one come from a different place of the wafer so it's more efficient? And so what the a little bit of the dirty secret is nobody talks about is It's different. And so if you look at the bounds of the part, there's variation part to part uh, of where it comes into play and the process from the supplier. The second key aspect is is basically really comes down to the thermal design, Um, the power limits. Or so if you look at the, the power being consumed, that's really a good way to look at it, because if supplier A is pulling 20 watts and if supplier B is pulling 15 And you're seeing that basically you're at TJ Maxx. Yes, this one has less capability than supplier A. But technically you are meeting all specs as long as you're meeting base clock
0: at TDP. Right. And you, at that point, which I think some people don't understand, is you are, it's not that it's throttling. It's that it's actually functioning within its design specifications, which is vendor B is a little bit slower than vendor A. I mean, isn't that? more accurate
1: that's more accurate and there's really three limits and so it's not just thermals there is a power limit there's a reliability limit and there's a thermal limit so those three limits dictate how long you can turbo so if you hit say what they call a tdc or an icc max you will turbo throttle it'll bring the frequency down if you hit tj max 100 you will throttle you'll bring the turbo frequency down (coughs) if you hit which I can't talk to, the reliability limit part of the part, which is internal, it'll bring turbo frequency down. So any one of these can limit the performance of the system and you prob- from the customer's perspective, you may not notice it, but more than likely, it's as long as you are at P0 frequency at TDP, that part is designed to spec. Now you can overdesign, and we do this. Um, so typically we have very advanced control where we will increase the power limits to the system dynamically to give you that really good response time but that is really dependent on the individual solution.
0: Uh okay and that does get us into the next topic which is designing a laptop. Uh, I do want to ask I sort of think there's there's different levers sort of like for as uh, you have as far as in respects to cooling you have uh you have skin temperature that's a limit right? Yep. So you also have acoustics that's a limit. Yep. You also have um Oh, gosh. What cost. else? Costs. I I wrote this all down in my previous questions. Yeah.
1: What factor. else?
0: Oh, and form factor. Yep. So am I missing anything? Are those sort of like those sort of things that sort of rein in what you can do when you design a laptop?
1: The others. Um, so it's it's you nailed it. Right. So really, it's performance, form factor, cost, acoustic skin temp. Um, all of those combined dictate the solution. So from, a, from an engineering perspective, we always call those the boundary conditions. What are the, What's the sandbox? How big is it? And how, how do we get to play? <clears throat> Usually when Dell's defining a product, we go look at our customer base. So XPS is different than Latitude. Latitude is different than Inspiron. We have different specs for each class. <laughs> this is kind of, I'm pretty sure this is unique to Dell. <clears throat> we have optimized for those customers. So if you look at every single one of those customers, we've characterized what they do, and we understand what a Latitude customer, latitude customer expects from a skim temp, and it will be different than, say, a gaming customer. And so all of those are unique. That is that is target one. Usually what happens, um, we're going to come in with a vision of what the system needs to look like. So we call it like an ID language. They will come in and show. Um, we have a whole separate group that comes in and says, you know what? This is the next generation Alienware 51 mobile, and it's going to be curved. It looks like a ball, right? Just make something up. Um, at that point in time, I'm sitting at the table saying, okay, great. Um, what is the performance you need? What is the CPU-GPU combination? What is the cost target? What is, and we are going to use what we call Class A acoustics. We'll just make up a number, 38 dBA. Um, We'll assume skins can't go over 48C as an example. That's the IEC limit. And then all of the physics we talked about earlier, and then we design within the sandbox. So whatever that is. In almost all cases, we optimize everything. So we will look at the foot height to look at the impedance, we talked about that earlier, the pressure drop to the fan, we will optimize that foot height in tenths of millimeters. After that, the venting hole. The little trick, so if you look at the vent hole itself, there's a magic number that's called two meters per second. If you look at airflow over that, you start to have high frictional losses. So usually the size of that vent is dictated by the foot height and how much air I have going into the fan. So for example, you all can do the math. If it was 10 cubic feet per minute, You go look at the area of that hole underneath it at that two meters per second range. That's how you would want to at least design the vent. Now, from a look perspective, we may grow it because we think it looks better. But from a physics perspective, there is a base limit of what we design to. After that, we talked a little bit with the DOO and even the other fans where you gasket, we would actually seal the system to ensure there was no recirculation. So that airflow path of air underneath the bottom of the system between the table and the foot is critical. As it turns 90 degrees to go up into the blower, that's critical. Um, Over the last two years, Dell's been coming through the top on a lot of our products. That cuts that velocity in half. So it's a short circuit path. And then we blow all that that airflow through the fin stack. So imagine 80 little copper fins um, in a row. And that impedance is critical as well as the exhaust path. Am I blowing into a panel? Like XPS, or is it a what we call a tower hinge, where we're just blowing out into the air? So all of that math is done to calculate the pressure drop to get the airflow. Then we optimize the fin stack. So we have all—it's—it's it's a big fancy term, but basically we have math that can tell us what the temperature drop will be based upon the size of the surface area. Um, it's called Reynolds number, Nusselt number. Um, we do all the calculations internally. It tells us how big that fin stack needs to be. Then it's optimized. So we can optimize for whatever Z height they want to maximize performance within the target. I think one of the hard parts is, honestly, is the performance. So for example, you and I are on Zoom right now. Um, Zoom with a specific part may pull TDP this entire time. Are you okay running at 33 DBA on a Zoom call? That's an example of the analysis that we have to go do internally to really scope our customers of what they're doing and how they're using the system and how to optimize the platform the design, the form factor, of the software for the application. Um, that's that's pretty much an overview. Um, sure. But basically, we optimize the airflow path, we optimize the pressure, then we optimize the fin stack for the surface temperature limits as well as the TJ limits, the component but limits.
0: You, but you don't get to go in and say, I, I want – you know, it's sort of a negotiation between other, other sort of factions, uh, acoustics, and, and maybe cost. I guess cost is always the one that reins everybody in, right? Yeah,
1: that's hard because basically there is a limit. I would love to throw air gel over the entire product, but that would be two hundred dollars. Um, I, I think the aspect it's always optimization. How do we optimize the product for our specific customers? A latitude five thousand is different than a latitude nine thousand. Um, if you look at XPS seventeen versus Inspiron, those are two very different cost targets for the box. And the reason we do that is we have an expectation. We know what those customers are doing. We're really trying to fine-tune it. That's why we have all these product lobs, lines of business, because it gives us that capability to optimize. It is a ton of work, right? So think about this. We have to do this every single time we do a platform. Um, I can't remember if it's 38 platforms, um, but they, they run together. We do so many that basically we fine slice the product portfolio to give those customers an optimized experience for what they're doing.
0: I was going to throw some shade at a certain company that only updates three laptops every three years, but I, I'm not going to. So.
1: Well, we we, we can go down their fan path <laughs> if you want. I'd love to throw shade too, but I probably shouldn't.
0: Yeah, we don't we don't want to start a start a East Coast or Texas California war here. But um, <laughs> hey, that's already happening with government. So <laughs> yeah, what can yeah. I say? Uh, I got a question. Uh, you talked about the the vents in the bottom, because everybody's gotten really, really aggressive with the vents in the bottom of a laptop. It seems easy. It's like, why not just have that whole bottom, just like all vents at this point? Is that, does that solve all our, all our issues with cooling on a, on a big uh, laptop?
1: No, I'll just be completely honest. So if you look at the bottom vent, it's less than 5% of the pressure drop now. So if you grow it, it doesn't do anything for my airflow. Now what it can do um, is I've got an M.2, like a, a hard drive, a storage device, in a corner. Maybe I do need airflow driving over that, because as we go from PCI, Gen 3 to Gen 4, you've seen large performance increases. So it's not just about the CPU and GPU. We do have to be concerned about chargers, right? the charging circuitry to the laptop. We have to be concerned about memory. Um, M.2s, if you look at PCIE-based devices, they can pull up to six watts. Um, which is high um, for a full workload. So they're extremely fast, fantastic for performance. If I was to tell your customers one thing, buy an SSD, uh, PCIe, you will get great performance. That's one of the best things you can do from a performance perspective on your system. Um, but you do have to cool it. It is critical. So we do a lot of innovation around it. We, get, we typically thermally sync to the board with a gap pad if we need to. We can add heat sinks. Um, but it's really important that you really focus on those devices um, due to capability beyond just the CPU or GPU, but the vent itself, a lot of times it's ID. It's just the look. So there is a minimum threshold, but a lot of times they want a very uniform structure. So they will make it look the whole length. Um, So if you look at our XPS um, 1517, usually it's a vent that's over the entire structure. (laughs) It's for that uniformity. Um, But beyond that, there is a minimum and it goes back to the airflow velocity. Over two meters per second, you start to have trouble with pressure drop. But right now for Dell products, our pressure drop is in that 5% range for our bottom vent.
0: So you're telling me a lot of those aggressive vents are basically for like four looks like, yeah, the, it's like a sports car with the, uh, the dam, you know, the, the wing on the back, it it yeah. does nothing for you. So not I, I on your Honda Civic anyway.
1: They they want to tell you number of heat pipes. They want to say, here's my venting, um, there is an optimal point there in serenity. So let, let's be frank: if you take something like Alienware 51M, if I'm pushing 300 watts of power, your airflow is going to be triple the requirement of something 100 watts of concurrency. So that gets that does can get important. Um, but the magic number really is the velocity of air entering the vent. So all of that is limited by that airflow going zip into that vent. That velocity, um, there's a term called Bernoulli's equation. Your uh, reviewers can look it up. The pressure drop through the vent is related to velocity squared. So if you have two meters per second, you square that term. There's, there's a frictional loss factor. That tells you how much you're losing there. <laughs> so what that does is it shifts the output output of the fan. Um, it's like choking your air intake into your car, right? So if you guys go put a um, towel over the the hood of your car and you limit the intake, it's not going to run as efficient. That's the same thing. So it's really critical to optimize that airflow path. We, we've talked a lot of hardware. Um, there's a lot in software that we do nowadays. And um, Intel Mobility Boost technology, that's really a unique one. And so th- there is a difference that you're starting to see between SmartShift, machine learning dynamic tuning technology, and Intel Mobility Boost, right? Um, if you look at both MLDTT, machine learning dynamic tuning technology, we are optimizing at runtime so we can look at what the customer is doing and tweak those power limits at runtime, that's unique, right? That's the future where you look at trying to be contextually aware of what they're doing, Um, taking it one step further. If you look at, do you know the Microsoft OS slider bar, how it got max performance? Yes. This battery life, what that's doing is changing the energy performance preference state to the system, right? The EPP value that actually changes the P code to the CPU. So when you go in, it'll actually run more efficient or it's going to run more performance Um, the Intel mobility boost technology gives you that capability to change that at runtime as well. So there's a lot of unique features there. Yeah. So
0: sorry, but I, I, but it's hard to, you know, a lot of people will do testing on, on full performance in the middle and you don't, it doesn't show up in benchmarks is the, you're I'm sure what kills you, right? Well, may not show up in benchmarks.
1: Yeah. And and that's the problem. Um, I'll give you an example. If you take that slider bar for the zoom call, you push it all the way to best performance, you're pulling TDP, it's 15 watts. But if you take that slider bar, go over the way to best battery, you're gonna pull around three watts. It's a huge power shift, but the question then becomes, what is the acceptable performance? So I think that's what's key. And so there's a bit, it's high stakes poker, right? I mean, we have got our cards and we're saying, okay, our customers want this. We're laying the cards on the table and, and making a bet saying, okay, when we're having a Zoom call, we wanna give you the best performance at this acoustic limit. So that's where this comes into play is really optimizing the design. Um, the benchmarks, you're absolutely right. That doesn't show in benchmarks. If you run PC Mark and you run the video conference call application, it's 50% power, right? It's 50% of TDP, most of the case. That doesn't capture the real world experience of what you and I are having right now. So at Dell, we do a lot of work looking at application usage and optimizing for both benchmark and application. But at the end of the day, unfortunately, uh, it's fortunate for our customers, but unfortunately for us from a press perspective, we may not necessarily focus primarily on the benchmark. We will go focus on the application at hand and try to optimize that runtime performance versus what the benchmark
0: is doing. Sure. And then we sort of get, sometimes you get sucked into, you can get sucked into a feedback loop because you're like, you know, vendor B, I lost the vendor B, we got to beat vendor B at so-and-so. And then sort of you're you're giving people performance that may not necessarily improve what they do for on their computer, right? That's, that's yeah, just we, not good.
1: We do. I mean, I, in my role, I do extensive sales training. Um, so I can tell you this last generation, I spent an absorbent amount of time training our sales staff of, of what the value is of MLDTT, what the value is of Intel mobility boost. What is the advantage of dynamic pl one? And what is the advantage of allowing our customers to change their tables And so what we have been trying to do is to get over that hump just from a press perspective and just say a benchmark perspective to say, hey, if you're running, say you're doing rendering, you're doing a whole render shop, place your system in performance mode or buy a precision. That's really what you should be doing. If you're basically doing Excel macros and logging data, um, get a latitude. That latitude and balance mode is going to rock. It's going to be small enough on your airplane seat. You're not going to be crimped up in the airplane seat because you can fully open your panel. Um, You're going to get all day battery life. If you want a premium experience, so if, for example, it's a sales organization, they can get what we call Olympic, which is our latitude 9510, full aluminum. That system can go to, I think it was 22 watts, PL1 for a 15-watt part. They're going to get full turbo performance beyond turbo or beyond P0 frequency capability at typical room ambient. They're going to get all these features we talked about. You're going to have a rocking little machine that you can pretty much do whatever you want most of the time. And so that's why it's really key for us to do that. Now, we do focus on benchmarks. We have a whole separate team that looks at benchmarks. But a lot of times it really comes down to optimizations. So if you look at our Latitude products, they're usually smaller than the competition. And we're beating them in a lot of benchmarks due to all the software that we talked about.
0: It's just hard to ever show that, right? It's and and I agree. And and somebody who is a professional measurer, it's really difficult to try to measure that. It's I, I don't know what the easy answer is for for well, us all. So
1: I, I think you do it I, almost for me. It would be you do one run a Cinebench, then run at steady state. I think both are applicable. So I, I mean, the one run a Cinebench is going to give you all that burst frequency. You're going to see what you're going to do within 30 seconds, and really, it's time dependent, right? So if you want run test 30 30 seconds to a minute. What is the performance? If you run a steady state, you're basically beyond turbo. Everything is stable and saturated. And really what you're looking at is that P0 or the steady state limit of that product. Um, And then you have to tie in skins. I can tell you, I just, that 9510 latitude product, obviously, I probably can't tell who we compared to, but we were close to 35% better than the competition. And we were only 2C higher on our skins. So it was a massive delta in performance for just slightly higher, <coughs> excuse me. And if you place the system in cool mode, we were actually cooler than the competition. And so, from that's our that's our perspective, we try to box the whole entire product in of saying, okay, let's do the base solution and give them the best performance. Then, if you want something else, you can pick it yourself through these different modes.
0: Uh, so, your question on skin temp and fan acoustics. It always feels to me like that's because I hear from people who say, uh, my keyboard is way too hot. And I'm like, this is like normal for me. I, I don't mind it at all. How do you determine what is the, is the, is an acceptable skin temp and what is acceptable fan noise? Cause I hear from people say, Oh, this away thing is way too loud. And some people say, no, it's, it's perfectly fine.
1: So we have a whole group, um, called experience design that actually that's their, that's their job. Um, I was just involved with this and we, we did have an issue (laughs) where we were concerned about our T skins on our skin temps on our latitude product, the previous generation. So if you look at the whiskey Lake products, um, for, for four months of my life, um, I was developing TTVs. So we would take strip eaters within a fake system and we would do jury studies. We brought in, um, what was it, uh, 60 customers from different ranges and they spent an hour each testing different temperatures, right? And then we developed what we called a mean opinion score. And we really looked for that comfort range. So in most cases for Dell, if you're running PC mark workloads, you're going to be sub 44C um, for plastic. You're going to be sub 42C for metal in that range for that configuration, which is very, very comfortable. Now you will have an excursion and we've seen this in the data. Your 1% won't like it. Um, for that, that's where we approach this mode where we enable cool mode. Cool mode limits the max tense T-skin for everything. So we basically limit performance and we bring that T-skin to sub 42C for metal everywhere. So it is a a, a large delta between, say, our typical spec versus cool mode. Now, your next question was acoustics. This is identical. Um, as I said, we have different classes and specs for every single line of business. Um, those, those responses to our customers, basically, um, we ran the same thing. We ran uh, a year worth of jury studies uh, to determine what our customers liked per line of business. So if you look at Inspiron versus Alienware versus XPS, based upon those specific customers, we have fine-tuned everything. And so again, we did that based upon what they called a mean opinion score of what was acceptable. Now that hits, we'll say 95% of our customer base, the fat part of the bat. There is still 5% that thinks it's too loud or it's too quiet. Right. Um, and so for those customers, we have quiet mode and quiet mode is a 30% drop in acoustics. So if I do have that 5% customers, we give them the option. Same thing for performance, right? So if the customer doesn't like performance, we give them performance mode. The only downside historically is they have to go load it. They have to go to DPM or they now have the opportunity to go in BIOS to do it. So you don't have to load DPM if you don't want to.
0: DPM is Dell performance manager. Yep. Cause I, I go in there a lot. I yep. go in there a lot. So yep, yep. when I'm doing testing, Huh. Wow. I just funny. Cause I just kept thinking of a few good men or something like that. Did
1: you order the code? Red? <laughs> so we've got a new application called Dell optimizer as well. That's the future. Um, Dell optimizer. We're actually looking at runtime and uh, how people are using their systems and looking at optimizations for them. And so ML, you're going to see here a lot of these buzzwords in the industry, machine learning, right? Um, artificial intelligence. What that really means is we're really trying to tune it for you at the end of the day. So if I know Gordon is doing um, uh, many interviews, and I know you're using Zoom most of the time, and if I look at your power and you're pulling 15 watts, I should probably leave you in balance mode. But if for some reason, let's say um, you're a front office worker and you're logging people in and out of an office, and you're only using 3% of your CPU utilization for most of the time, I could probably give that customer the recommendation to put it in quiet mode right? There's no negative from a performance perspective. So over the long run, where we're headed, we're going to be looking at automation, we're going to be looking at optimization for those customers at runtime, and really helping them further fine tune their systems within the bounds of the boundary condition, that sandbox we kind of talked about. That's where um, obviously, we're really focused in trying to give those customers those best, those best values and best benefits over time.
0: So very much a, a personalized computing experience set for you, you don't have to go and mess around with stuff.
1: That's the plan. And that, that DO is the first step in that plan. Um, Obviously that's, that's what it is supposed to be. And so, for example, if you're um, let's say like most people working from home now, if they're always on AC, there's really no reason at this time to help them optimize battery life. And so you could basically streamline performance that says, okay, they're on AC hundred percent of the time on zoom. Let's give them that performance. And so we can provide them that opportunity. But if I had a road warrior, let's say somebody is going from room to room to room, conference room warrior, um, obviously all day battery life is key. Looking at optimizations for that as well would be key as well.
0: Wow, I, I love it because I mean that's that's what I'm doing right now. I gotta go downstairs to the basement and move this laptop. But I think I'm run out of time, so I want to thank Travis North from Dell, a thermal technologist in the CTO's office and clearly a thermal nerd for. Educating me on just everything I think I've ever wanted to know about laptop cooling and thermals and thermal engineering. Uh, Come back to PC World's uh, channel to check out more videos and hopefully have more spectacular guests like Travis. Thank you. Thank you.